Hello, I'm Garni Barkajarian of the Pacific Neuroscience Institute and CNS member for more than 10 years. What I love most about being a member is access to cutting edge science and the opportunities that have advanced my career. I've also gained new colleagues and lifelong friends. Being a CNS member has been so rewarding. The value of membership cannot be defined by a number. Join me and the over 10,000 neurosurgeons who are making a difference in the world. Visit cns.org slash membership podcast today. Hi, and, and welcome to the July edition of the CNS Journal Club podcast. I'm Joe Domino. I'm one of the seventh year residents at the University of Kansas and soon to be neurosurgical oncology fellow at Moffitt Cancer Center. Uh, today we'll be discussing an, an article entitled uh, Identifying the Sources of Racial Disparity in the Treatment of Parkinson's Disease with Deep Brain Stimulation. I'd like to go ahead and give uh, each of our panelists uh, some time to introduce themselves, and we'll start with the author himself, uh, Dr. O. Young. Hi, uh, I'm Nick O. Young. Uh, I'm a functional uh, neurosurgery faculty at Emory University. I'm thrilled to be a, a part of this discussion. Thank you for the invitation. Great. And then our one of our, our guest faculty member is Dr. Rowland. Hi, good afternoon. Thank you for the invitation. Very honored. Uh, I am a functional neurosurgery attending at Medical College of University, Medical University of, uh, of South Carolina, and did my medical school at Emory, uh, and and uh, have roots there. So thank you for the invitation. And continuing with the uh, the Emory connection heavy uh, uh, podcast. Uh, we have our other faculty member, Dr. Huang. Yes, good. Uh, it's a great group of uh, Emory-affiliated people. So I'm Kimberly Huang, and I am the CNS Journal Club uh, chair, and um, I'm from also Emory from Emory University. I am a neurosurgical oncologist with a tumor practice here. Very good. So welcome to everybody, and welcome to our listeners. I'd like to start by just uh, giving Dr. Oyang a few minutes to just uh, give us an overview of, of his paper, and then we'll we'll jump in with a good discussion from there. Sounds good. Uh, I, before I start, uh, I just want to uh, give credit to uh, Henry Skelton. He's an MD-PhD student at Morehouse School of Medicine uh, who, who did a lion's share of this, this, this study. Uh, also, uh, along with Dayton Grogan, he, uh, he was a graduate of uh, Medical College of Georgia, uh, and he's now a neurosurgery resident uh, at UVA. Really proud of uh, both of them. Uh, Neil Laksapati, who's a seventh-year uh, neurosurgery resident at Emory, uh, he's heading off to Texas Children's uh, for the Pediatric Neurosurgery uh, Fellowship. Uh, he also contributed to this body of work, um, and I'm I'm very excited to tell you about the study. Uh, we've thought uh, thought about this for several years, um, and this study is based on the fact that we know that deep brain stimulation is highly effective. It's a highly effective treatment for advanced medically refractory Parkinson's disease. Uh, it is significantly uh, underutilized in black patients, indicating a substantial treatment gap. Uh, this, study, this study was aimed to identify the sources of this racial disparity by analyzing patient data from 2016 to 2020, util utilizing demographics from, the, from Atlanta to predict potential DBS candidates based on PD and race data. Our center is the primary provider of DBS in this area, 
with 33% of Atlanta's population being Black. It, constitute, it constitutes the second largest Black population of any metropolitan statistical area in the United States. Despite this, we found that fewer Black patients were evaluated for DBS compared to what the regional Atlanta demographics would suggest. However, once evaluated, there was no significant difference in the rate at which Black and white patients received DBS treatment. Interestingly, areas with larger pop Black populations witnessed fewer patient recruitments. The underuse of DBS in Black PD patients was confirmed in this racially diverse metropolitan sample. Notably, the pre-surgical workup did not contribute to this disparity as far as our findings suggest. Great, thank you so much. Um, I, I'll start it off with Dr. Rowland and let you, uh, you know, ask any questions that you may have, and we'll just see where it goes from there. Sure, sure. So I just have to just, um, you know, give uh, Nick and all of his um, co-authors uh, a lot of credit. This is a very timely and a very topical, you know, issue for lots of people, me included, because we actually have written and, and have under review an article that is similar in nature, um, but I don't think it, act, I felt like your paper actually did a really good job of trying to get at the core issue. And I just wanna commend you for all from top to bottom. I love the experimental design, whoever came up with the statistics to try to build a model, to just try to unpack and disentangle each of the, uh, you know, referral to, you know, medical, I guess, uh, uh, treatment and then from medical treatment to failure, from there to surgical referral and from referral to actual implantation, uh, that was a really innovative way to look at this. And so I was very, very impressed with this. Um, I get asked this question a lot, by the way. So I'm, I'm involved not only as a practitioner, but as sort of an academic. Uh, and it, I get asked this from lots of different avenues, and I don't have all the answers, but I just felt like this was a very innovative way to try to approach this problem. So just right off the bat, I, I thought you did, guys did an, a wonderful job. Um, what I want to do is just try to explore uh, maybe kind of the edges of what you guys, your approach and the kind of the questions that you were asking, the problem that you're asking. Uh, and I won't, I'll, you know, sort of just start out by saying um, one of the issues that we found in our own public, our manuscript that's in a review is it, I never could find an actual percentage of the Black population with Parkinson's disease. And the reason I ask that question is because if the, you know, um, uh, if the population of African-Americans with Parkinson's disease is 3%, well, they should be getting 3% of the DBS implantations. Or if it's 1%, if it's 10%, but, you know, maybe not 12%, which is sort of, it, it, you, you could mistake the population overall in the United States as being uh, predictive of the population of implantees that you should see. And that may not be exactly the way to look at it. So I was curious if you were able to track that number down. You guys did a, looked at a number of databases, but that particular number I did not see. Yeah, the prevalence uh, numbers are hard to come by. Uh, you know, the, the best one we found was uh, from this Willis et al. Uh, paper, uh, the geographic and ethnic variation in Parkinson's disease, a population-based study of U.S. Medicare benefic beneficiaries. 
And um, that that's that's still limited in in, in the inherent methodology. Um, what what we found in those numbers, what they've reported is that age standardized PD prevalence per 100,000 was about uh, 2,168 uh, in white men, uh, but in, uh, in in black uh, population as well as Asians, it's about 1,000 uh, uh, respectively. So it's about half of, of white men. Uh, but, you know, we are there is no ground truth, right? That's the problem that we are having. It, it, it's people who actually end up being diagnosed and entered in such databases, uh, but it's actually hard to determine uh, if there's underdiagnosis, uh, people who are not uh, sampled or uh, included in various uh, for various reasons. Uh, and, and that's the issue that we keep running against uh, in these uh, types of study. I just wanted to, you know, respond to that by saying, hey, I, I agree. We also had trouble really um, uh, tracking this down. And then, the, you know, there are so many other questions. Just if we just sort of stayed there, one being, obviously, we believe there may be genetic differences. If you sort of, you know, boil this down to a physiologic difference between uh, races with regard to PD pathophysiology or, or even subtypes. Uh, but Another related question would be, um, even if we, even if that was the ground truth, how many then uh, in the say black population are advanced versus uh, versus mild? So, you know, PD just happens to be pathophysiologically milder or more advanced in terms of prevalence within that population. Well, then you would expect more as a percentage of uh, black patients to be, you know, implanted. Uh, as a population versus, you know, uh, populations that have less advanced disease, again, in terms of prevalence. And then when we talk about racial disparities, point number two would be, yeah, I mean, it, it may be that, um, you know, it's just underreported because whatever is driving racial disparities in DBS use or use of DBS may also be driving underreporting just of the disease itself, just in terms of primary care, referrals and neurology appointments, et cetera, et cetera. And then, um, you know, the, the, the third uh, issue may be that, um, uh, again, just trying to track down uh, whether the difference between uh, black and white patients in the use of DBS is simply reflective of the difference between black and white patients with all other surgical invasive surgeries or uh, neurological disease, use of neurological treatments, such as in MS or Alzheimer's. So we don't know how much of that is trickling down through the, the way healthcare is delivered. Um, but having said all of that, I still thought that your methodology was very, very uh, thorough. And I, I really enjoyed just kind of reading how you, you modeled each of the components. And I think that's really kind of the best uh, way to start disentangling because you may find a small little signal in there like, you know, like the 67-day delay that is between white and black patients. And maybe that's our tiny little clue that maybe that's kind of where the next study like this would take off. 
Yeah, thanks. Thanks for your kind words, Nate. Um, yeah, exactly right. That that's you know we were motivated motivated to do the study based on you know uh, many many of the key points that you you made. Um, what was interesting for us was um, looking at trying to trying to utilize the the um, the population at in Atlanta. You know, just being a kind of a very diverse population, expecting that we could see higher recruitments. Uh, and and I think that that map of where our DBS uh, patients are coming from was actually quite interesting and maybe provides insight to the next step because we are not really capturing patients. Not you know we, we are favoring patients outside of of Atlanta even and outside of uh, of of, of uh, areas with a higher number of black patients. So it seems that. It has to do with recruitment and whether that's entangled with referral patterns, which no doubt it is. Uh, that is the next logical step to, to, to kind of tease out the underlying, um, you know, mechanisms that is, you know, prohibiting uh, more uh, diverse recruitment um, for, uh, among DBS patients. Uh, I think you're right. This is not this is not unique to DBS. I think this is true in most of our functional um, procedures, right? And I think this is also even true. Just looking at some of the papers regarding just surgeries, including heart surgeries, vascular surgeries, or even orthopedics, uh, disparity is well known. Uh, it's well known for quite some time. Uh, based on my reading, we have not made a substantial dent or you know change the inflect to change the, the the trajectory uh despite knowing this is a, a phenomena in medicine for quite some time so um i think to drill down we have to assume you know just based basically on what we have found is it's not that patients do are not more like more are less likely to proceed towards surgery, um, that they are, you know, somehow put off with the idea of getting implants, but it's really, they, they just don't get into the door. Uh, and with that piece of information, maybe we can do better, right? Yeah, you know, one of the thoughts that I, you know, had, um, you know, do you, in your, you know, just anecdotally, because obviously you've, you've focused on Parkinson's and TBS in your, in this case, but do you have a sense is is a similar trend uh, there, and you know, essential tremor, or dystonia, or epilepsy, um, all you know areas that you know have you know, strong indications for you know implantable like neuromodulation, and um, you know have maybe you know uh, biases um, from referring providers or patients, uh, you know, distrust of that part of it. Um, do you have a sense whether that you know anecdotally is still present in you know ET dystonia and epilepsy as well as Parkinson's? Yeah, I think uh, maybe Nate can talk about epilepsy and what what what. Uh, but I, I'm, you know, based on you know my 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 understanding, it, it's definitely very uh, prevalent in epilepsy. Just this disparity. Um, that's a good question, and actually, it brings back a lot of uh, or brings up a lot of. Um, uh, rich cultural context for me. Uh, so just to uh, set the set the the scene, I'm actually from Atlanta. I grew up in Atlanta, and 
I have family members who required epilepsy surgeries, both invasive and they went through, uh, you know, SEEG monitoring, so an inpatient stay multiple times, by the way. I, uh, as a younger, you know, kid growing up, saw all the, the different processes, spoke to the surgeons. Uh, and then as a medical student at Emory later on, uh, again, got a chance to kind of see see uh, the the pathway of black versus white patients uh, in real time from the medical perspective. Um, I think the diseases are a little different. That's my impression. I don't have any data to support that. Epilepsy, there are you know different options. So, for instance, vagus nerve stimulation gets used quite a bit more so than say. At the time, there was no RNS, but you know more invasive surgeries, including surgical resection. And I think by the time patients get to that stage, they're a, a bit more aware of the different options. They've been explained this by their their neurologist. Um, you know, Nick knows this very well. But for whatever reason, deep brain stimulation in relation to Parkinson's has been very, very tough, or has been very challenging for referring neurologists and mostly community neurologists. To, uh, to refer any patient of any race uh, for, and we, get, we still get comments like, my neurologist told me that I should never consider DBS because I would not be able to ever speak again or, or something of that sort. And we get that from white and black patients. So, you know, one of the things that sort of dawned on me as, as uh, Joe was making that comment is, you know, I also wonder if we were to look at whether Black patients are being referred by Black neurologists and whether those neurologists have a difference in opinion with regard to the efficacy of DBS, that might be a, a reason why they don't get referred at the same percentage. But I'm not, I, I don't have any data to support that, but that just may be one, one area to, to kind of look in. Uh, but I can tell you that there's, there, I, I have a lot of experience just on both sides of this, just as a you know, as a patient or patient advocate and as a physician now doing this, uh, there's a there's a lot of difference in in the culture around surrounding treatment for epilepsy or, you know, dystonia, you know, dystonia. Those folks are going to come mostly from pediatricians. Pediatricians tend, in my opinion, tend to be fairly aggressive once they, because dystonia really has no other treatment, right? So, you know, they're going to move quickly to get those folks referred. So we, we and dystonia is, you know, a very low prevalence in general, generalized dystonia. So we tend to see those folks and they do very well. You know, we, we don't have any trouble with those, but Parkinson's disease in particular is this really intransigent, just, you know, intractable issue that we have both with white and black populations, but with black populations, I've operated in my entire medical career, and that would be including uh, residency. Uh, I probably can count on my on two hands all the black patients I've ever operated on, and I've seen two just in the past month, and that's like the most I've ever seen in that time period. So it's still it's still pretty rare for me to see black patients uh, who are suitable candidates for DBS. Yeah, doctor, you know, in this study where there was, you know, 10 patients, I mean, it's, it's out of, you know, 100 and, you know, some, so obviously it's, it's low everywhere. I think that's very much true. Thanks, Nate, for sharing your actually personal experience. It's very, very um, insightful, I think, and very pertinent to the discussion. You know, um, not to be that strange person that always tries to bring it back to their subspecialty, but Nick mentioned that, um, 
There is, you know, even in orthopedics and cardiothoracic surgery. And I see a lot of parallels in some ways in our struggles in neuro-oncology when we try to increase in, you know, enrollment in clinical trials across various racial and socioeconomic groups, um, just like you guys are probably seeing, although the cultures might be slightly different um, you know, and functional for either epilepsy or um, Parkinson's. And you know, this can be a huge barrier for us in the oncology community given certain regions. Um, you know, and I think that you know, trials or the words implantation and devices in functional neurosurgery versus trials in oncology kind of can carry some of the same connotations. I think um, for this group, who's obviously very forward thinking about this, I um, wonder if we have some novel and upstream ways we can get at the root of this problem. Um, for instance, like in our cancer center, we've been increasingly more um, systematic about documenting that we are offering clinical trials to literally all of our patients and like putting that in the chart more to be more um, you know systematic about it. But maybe you guys in functional have come up with some great ways that are a little bit outside of the box to kind of address this challenging um, situation, you know, across subspecialties, I would say. Yeah, thanks, Kim. The um, I think this this is a a problem that that is yet to be precisely identified, right? Um, so what I mean by that is, you know, taking into account our recent experiences, you know, with focus ultrasound uh, versus DBS with tremor, um, one of our one of our most uh, effective form of neuromodulation, I would say, but yet time and time again, we see patients who are learning about treatments um, and then not, and then, and then expressing to us that they are not even aware that such treatment existed despite being uh, on medications for years on decades on end. So, you know, in, you know, being being an engineer, that there is there's an inherent capacitance in in this in the medical system somewhere where these patients are living in, uh, residing in, and and that at what point these patients escape out of this region and into a into a referral, uh, that has to do with either they are made aware that there is a, a surgical treatment that is effective. Uh, they they are referred out, or uh, somebody somebody informs them who are who are non medical. Uh, you know, for for epilepsy groups, particularly in the pediatric population, there's uh, there's strong voices in support groups, uh, be them uh, be they uh, chat groups or online groups, uh, where people uh, encourage others to seek uh, subspecialty care. Um, when that th that doesn't necessarily exist, uh, I think for for um, Parkinson's patients, particularly uh, perhaps even uh, for, for Black patients who are not involved in some of these face group, uh, face, uh, Facebook group or, or something like that. Uh, the, the dissemination of information, I think it's inherently different based on culture, the involvement with you know, uh, online, online groups. Um, so um, unless that there is a substantial um, Push to inform the, the the public that there is uh, that there they are non uh, they, that they are effective surgical avenues. I, I don't. I think we we need to make a conscientious push uh, uh, for more education. Right. That's a very astute point, and I like the use of inherent capacitance. That was a great use. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. I love that. 
Uh, well, I was just by responding to your question, I was going to say uh, I wanted to make sure we we certainly um, express uh, some optimism and hope in trying to solve this problem. Um, so one of the things that I think has been very uh, exciting for me uh, is a couple of opportunities that have come up that I think that I've not had before, but I think are, are really exciting and I think point the way towards the future. One of they're sort of based on this idea. Again, you know, some of this is is evidence based, and some of it is just this notion that um, black patients. Sorry, sorry, this has been well documented, but with regard to DBS. Uh, is is not yet clear, but uh, black patients that are treated by black doctors, and this would go for any other uh, racial or ethnic group, tend to have better outcomes. Well, we don't know that. I don't think with regard to DBS. Um, but uh, I, actually, in a few days, I have been invited to give uh, or to to host a meeting with a Parkinson's disease support group that is made up of all black men. Uh, I've never seen this before. I've never experienced this before. And they're not even in my area, not in Charleston. They're actually in uh, Charlotte, North Carolina. And somehow they they identified me and they wanted to meet with me. And I'm super excited just to witness what kinds of questions they ask. I assume they would be, you know, very similar to the questions that our, our patients in the in the clinic ask. But I am thrilled that I get an opportunity. Uh, to have them see someone who, you know, looks like them and can answer the questions that they have. Uh, and this would not be for my own benefit. I don't think I would implant uh, any of them, but at least dissemination of information, just like Nick talked about, I think is a really important start. So I'm I'm happy to kind of report back to you guys this experience, but I just think, you know, that's, that's a really awesome uh, opportunity. On the other side, uh, I regularly bring... Uh, uh, students of color, mentors of color into the operating room during DBS cases so they can see what I do. What, what does it look like? What do neurosurgeons do? What do functional neurosurgeons do? I've had a number of them. And yes, it has made a big difference in terms of their career choices and opportunities and wanting to come back and, and be able to um, share a little bit about what my life looks like and my career looks like. So those have all been just really awesome opportunities. And so in terms of novel approaches to helping to, you know, to try to uh, solve this problem, I think those are sort of getting at the right, you know, pitching at the right level. And I'll just end by saying that as part, so I uh, chair the uh, Diversity, Equity, Inclusion Committee of the ASSFN, which is our American Society for Stereotactic and Functional Neurosurgery. And we just developed what's called the Amplify model, AMPL, in which we have decided that what, what we really think people, students, I should say, trainees need to try to get them over the hump of you know, getting mashed into neurosurgery and thinking about functional neurosurgery uh, is you know, four things, authorship, mentorship, um, being able to uh, to like peer review and and uh, being able to uh, participate in lots of those sorts of opportunities, and then leadership. You know, look, what is your life? What is your career going to look like? Are you going to be a leader in your field? Uh, so we are super excited about this new Amplify model. We think amplifying diversity within uh, this field will uh, be what we need to, as Nick pointed out earlier. Uh, uh, change the trajectory, or in my words, move the needle in 
you know, how these patients come to surgery, learn about surgery, get educated, uh, get referred, and ultimately have good outcomes is sort of what the, 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 what the ultimate desire would be. Yeah, that's great. Thank you so much. Uh, you know, phenomenal, um, you know, experience and, and ideas. I'd like to give uh, Dr. Young maybe um, a, little, a few minutes here to, to wrap up if you have any, you know, last thoughts on, um, you know, on directions forward and, and just the, the discussion in general. Yeah, thank you. Thank, thank you for all of uh, you for inviting me. Uh, thanks, Nate, for um, providing some of the really key insights into, you know, this this hard to uh, tackle issue. I think going forward, you know, we would be very uh, interested in, you know, speaking with neurologists, maybe doing surveys. Uh, if we could do targeted uh, surveys of, you know, of patients from various cultural backgrounds and race backgrounds, I think that that would also provide additional insight, despite not ever having a, a ground truth to any of this. But I, I think if if nothing else, um, it moves us farther back into the process. And if we can help, you know, uh, X amount of patients get into uh, an effective surgical treatment, uh, I think it's worth worthwhile, right? So. Uh, but uh, having a conversation, uh, a discussion that this is a extremely important issue in providing excellent neurosurgical care, I think that's a first step uh, in getting uh, as many people who are you know involved and passionate about the subject to be involved. Uh, that that's that's extremely important. So I hope that more people join in this effort. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, I really appreciate everyone taking the time to to join us today. Um, again, I've uh, you know I learned something, and and every time hearing you know more personal experiences, uh, it really adds color to to hearing about you know papers like like this. Um, I just want to mention to all of the listeners that um, this the podcast activity associated with this is worth um, 1.5 CME and is complimentary to all CNS members. And it's available through the online catalog at cns.org. And again, thank you for everyone for taking the time and for our listeners as well. Um, this has been the July 2023 CNS Journal Club podcast. Thank you so much.